Welcome to the AWP podcast series. You are now tuning in to the Council of Literary Magazine's keynote address, Small Press Heaven, Poetics from the Floating World. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Denver on Thursday, April 8th, 2010. The recording features Anne Waldman and Jeffrey Leppendorf. Thanks for being here. I'm Jeffrey Leppendorf, Executive Director of the Council of Literary Magazines and Presses, CLMP. Uh, CLMP, since 1967, has been helping small publishers through the business of publishing. We uh, like to say uh, inside that we, we help publishers with all of the unsexy stuff that allows you to enjoy the sexy stuff, um, what's being published. And um, every year uh, in our little conference, within a conference here at AWP, we invite um, someone very special who has... Uh, someone who's particularly special to the small press community and literary magazine community to serve as our keynote speaker. And um, we have an extra special guest today, someone who is not only an important part of the history of publishing, but um, an important part of the poetry canon and, and in fact, important part of CLMP's history itself. So um, I, I feel like I, I don't have to say anything to introduce Anne Waldman, but um, she has published over 40 books of poetry. She has been involved in many, many anthologies of poetry, and um, it would be you'd be hard to go to any poetry section anywhere and not, not be able to find a book by Anne. Um, there are uh, a, her book um, Manatee Humanity has just come out from Penguin, and her um, magnum opus Iovis is coming out from Coffee House. Uh, in this next year. Um, Anne is also along with Allen Ginsberg, co-founder, of course, of the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa, and um, still runs the uh, summer program there and is our artistic director of the program there. And I could go on and on, but I want, I'd rather just introduce to you Ms. Anne Waldman. And I should introduce you again to Jeffrey. This is another thing he does, very passionate about, a wonderful shakuhachi player, and also he's, uh, he has several instruments, other instruments here, the jiao and the tanso from Korea. So he's going to accompany my little talk, and I want to acknowledge the support for this floating world, as I'm calling it, floating world, small press heaven, uh, for this presentation from the council. And this uh, formidable, formidable organization was just getting started in my early years and was a lifeblood for so many of us uh, in the young alternative poetics community. And I also served at one point on the uh, board with James Tate and others. I think it was a very different kind of uh, operation and a very different temporary autonomous zone. But the fact that it's continued is really wonderful and extraordinary and how helpful it's been all these years. So thank you. <clears throat> the floating world. I borrowed this nomer, which refers to the artistic genre of woodblock printing in Japan. 
representing an evanescent world, an impermanent world which depicted motifs of landscape, tales from history, the theater, the pleasure quarters, sometimes in single sheet prints like broadsides. They were produced from the 17th to 20th centuries and seemed to cover a range of activities. I'd like to conjure this sense of immediacy, availability. These woodblock prints were inexpensive and at times mass-produced, and they were representing that floating world, ephemeral rather than eternal. When I found myself in the midst of so much of our frenzied poetry publishing activity in the mid-60s, the sense was to get it out. We were not thinking about durability or preciosity or something lasting. The point was poetically and politically to get the works, as we call them, out now by any means necessary, as Diane de Prima calls her talk on small press publishing in the recent Beats at Naropa, published by Coffee House Press. And it was the extraordinary anthologist and poet Jerome Rothenberg's Hawkwell Press that published five issues of a magazine entitled Poems from the Floating World and half a dozen books of poetry, including one of Diane Wachowski's early books. So nice to have people in the room here who know some of this history as well. And I'd also like to invoke the image of the sacred conversation in Italian painting, the Sacra Conversazione, hosts of poets and artists and philosophers standing around in heaven in harmonious, angelic discourse. Allen Ginsberg often described this state of communitas as high art and talk, high talk. And Robert Creeley referred frequently to the company of friends the necessity and lifeblood of that grounding in community, and also a sense of sangha, Sanskrit for community, a community of like-minded spiritual seekers. And what were we talking about in our sacred conversations? Often a recent poem that had appeared overnight in a Mimeo magazine, put together by invisible small press cobblers or weavers in the middle of the night, the trolling elves. It's so wonderful now that people start to salivate over the staples, the little traces of rust from the staples on our mimeograph magazines. I still have some boxes full and the, the, the sort of shadow floating world uh, markers, those little signs. In this magpie exegesis, I'd like to highlight the necessity of the inventions and the sense of lineage that our small press work entailed, and uh, a lineage which I call the outrider lineage. Outrider, riding alongside, not outside, but outride. And uh, this came to me in my years here in Colorado. Um, and in conversations with Ed Dorn and others. So the outriders often were the, the folk who carried the mail or who carried the accoutrements or the extras with the um, community that was moving, this migratory community. So invoking that outrider lineage and also the praxis of gift economy. And I'll talk a little bit about that Marcel Mauss's 
uh, sense of what that is, the gift economy. And this alternative path has also been very much a personal trip uh, in terms of my whole life as a writer. I think without the support of community and without the support of small press, I'd be in a very different state of mind. And also Charles Olson's sense in his projective verse of the kinetics of the thing and one thought following instanter on the other. And this was something we invoked in the early days of the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, that sense of the project as projecting outward into public space and also seeing small press not only as an economy but as a performance. Hold to the future with firm hands, the future of each afterlife or each ghost of each word that is about to be mentioned. Jack Spicer from a textbook of poetry. I know how to work the machines from my own fast-speaking woman. My new book of poetry to be printed in simple type on old brown paper, feminine, marvelous, and tough. Ted Berrigan, personal poem number nine from the sonnets, first printed in offset format by C Press, co-edited with Ron Paget in the 60s. And Chinua Chebe has written, new forms must stand ready to be called into being as often as new threatening forces appear on the scene. It is like earthing an electrical charge to ensure communal safety. And so much of this activity was going on in the midst of the Vietnam War, and many of us were involved with alternative uh, protest and trying to hold community together. So this sense of earthing an electrical charge to ensure communal safety. So we earthed our Mimeo machines in this ethos. We plugged them in, we earthed them in our temporary autonomous zones. We earthed them in the margins. We earthed them in outrider space. We earthed them in the interstices, the places where we still had control over the look and feel of our own work and where we were also in that glorious company. And our collaborative, collective press activity was a kind of hybrid. Hybridity literally referring to the characteristics of plants or animals that are offspring of individuals belonging to different species. But this critical theorizing term now used in post-colonial theory describes the newness of many different forms of migrant or minority discourses that flourish in the diasporas of the modern and postmodern periods. Homi Baba speaks of the third space of enunciation, not unlike William Burroughs's third mind, which emerges as a result of collaboration, cannibalizing of text, appropriation, the meeting of two minds, intervention on sacred cows, as when Burroughs intercuts lines with Rambeau or Shakespeare, or Ted Berrigan's collaged sonnets. And there's also William Carlos Williams's notion of stepping into a magazine as you would a love affair with a lot of strange bedfellows. So linguistic crossbreeding as well as imaginal crossbreeding, which might result as a clash of civilizations or cultures or languages or other trajectories of identification, 
which could also be a gradual assimilation or exchange. And one thinks gratefully of so many small presses that have highlighted translation as their main focus, such as Keith and Rosemary Waldrop's extraordinary burning deck. I've more and more been thinking of how the United States spreads its ideologies through war and commerce, promoting and market-driving its stuff, and how small press and the other work we do emerges as continuing antidote. And that poetry for me has always been the rival government and needs to do what the combined polis is supposed to be doing, taking care of one another's imagination and language invention, and that our work should be more tenacious than ever, making sense and perhaps more importantly reflect and ponder the strange hybrid mirror and what kind of brave, new, terrifying world we are inhabiting. The Syrian poet Adonis has written, there is no human dimension at any given period of time without poetry. Poetry is not a stage, but a constituent of human consciousness. Poetry is news that stays news. Spread that news. Helene Sissou has said that the 20th century in its violence has brought about the marriage of poetry and history, perhaps the most provocative hybrid of all from the standpoint of being writers and artists. Ernesto Cardinal advocates exteriorismo, not unlike the strategy of Olson's investigative poetics, where you bring exact data, information, and elements of real life to the work. Where we must answer with our imaginations to hold the values of the imagination, we need to be not only defenders of freedom, but inventors of freedom and earth that charge. projects I was involved with started with very little capital. For years, we needed to raise modest amounts of money to sustain these community activities, the avant-garde experimental poetry communities operating outside the well-funded institutions and the academic mainstream always functioned along the lines of gift economy, gift economy. This term comes from French anthropologist and sociologist Marcel Mauss often considered the father of modern French anthropology. His most influential work is Essay sur le don, translated as the gift, the form, and reason for exchange in archaic societies. We are far, and maybe not so far, from archaic, but I think some of the paradigm still holds. Mouse writes that the giver does not merely give an object but gives part of himself or herself. The object is indissolubly tied to the giver. The objects are never merely separated from the men who exchange them. Because of this bond between giver and gift, the act of giving creates a social bond with an obligation to reciprocate on the part of the recipient. Mouse asks, what power resides in the object that causes its recipient to pay it back? There's also the notion of inalienability. In a commodity economy, there is a strong distinction between objects and persons through the notion of private property. Private property. 
Objects are sold, meaning that the ownership rights are transferred to the new owner. The object becomes alienated from its original owner. But in a gift economy, the objects are inalienable from the givers. They're loaned rather than sold and seeded. Gift exchange therefore leads to a mutual interdependence between giver and receiver. According to Mouse, the free gift that is not returned is a contradiction because it cannot create social ties. His argument is that solidarity is achieved through social bonds created by gift exchange. And this has certainly been true of bohemian artist cultures and certainly true of the way the small press has survived. For years, small presses have been exchanging their chapbooks and magazines and poets and visual artists design who design the covers and the like have given freely of their work. While the economy has shifted in recent years, this practice continues unabated. In this exchange, the author is more interested in copies of the item than financial remuneration. Often the artist donates the artwork or the poet the manuscript to sustain the press. Clearly, there is a deeper complexity in these considerations of an individual's intention and the efficacy of one's creative work in the world and what it's worth. And I'm sure a lot of the small presses here need to seriously think about the economy and how they survive and where they get the money from. But I'm harking back to the old days of the floating world. Joan Ritalik, the poet and John Cage scholar, has observed, when you get down to the level of individual agency, the effects of any one person's actions or work particularly from the partial and myopic perspective of that individual herself, are quite mysterious. This means, I think, that each person has to make decisions based on prescription rather than prediction. Prescription rather than prediction. You might prescribe in an aesthetic context that your own action will be based on our conscious framework of values, knowing that you can't predict the effect this will have on your audience, much less the world situation. I grew up inside a bohemian family and community that particularly valued the chapbook. The genre carried this palpable dynamism, an economic viability, a wide-ranging aesthetic over various times and cultures. It was a path with numerous trajectories, although painstakingly devotional letterpress printing or through painstaking devotional letterpress printing or cheaper, swifter modes of mimeo and offset to get that work out. Gary Snyder speaks of how the identity of the poet was established through publication, how hard it was to get into print in the 50s. William Burroughs' first publication in the Black Mountain Review, just one example, a huge breakthrough. As I was getting started in the early 60s, in, in high school, editing something called The Oblivion and a magazine called The Stove, as a poet in small press publisher, there was a sense of being part of a glorious time-honored lineage. One took pride in the seminal marginal ethos of its press, the press and the chapbook format of the underground. I first worked with a printer of menus and broadsheets in Bennington, Vermont, one Ronnie Ballou, who seemed both mystified and charmed by setting lines of poetry. Most of us know the origins of the term chapbook here the chapbook being a generic term for a pocket-sized booklet 
popular in the 16th century British Isles, considered a variety of ephemera, could also be a political pamphlet, a religious tract, selections of folk tales, or an almanac, and so on. And this form arose from the broadsheet and broadside, which were often used as official notices posted on walls and barns. And you can see these still in China. And you saw them, I saw them in South America. And I once had a tasty samosa wrapped in old pamphlet checkbook paper in India. The chapbook was part of the stock and trade of the chapman, a kind of peddler and also a trickster pickpocket. Noah Eli Gordon, in a piece on the chapbook, also calls the chapman a kind of Johnny Appleseed of early literary education. I frequented the 8th Street bookshop when I was a child, growing up just a few blocks away on McDougal Street in Greenwich Village. Begun in 1947, the Wilentz the brothers, Ted and Eli, started their store in an old Wamrath which sold greeting cards and the like, later moving to another location across the street and was still going strong, both the store and the Corinth Press, which had begun in 1959. It was an active literary scene for many years, publishing small editions, first stapled, later glued, and also published in conjunction with Leroy Jones, later Amiri Baraka's Totem Press, a number of important anthologies and books. I remember four lady poets. I remember Ted Jones's The Hipsters. I remember the Moderns Anthology, edited by Leroy Jones. And to Prima's Dinners and Nightmares, she had shown me a copy when I first went to visit her in situ at the Albert Hotel in New York City in 1962. I had just gotten out of high school. I remember buying my first copy of Howl at this bookshop. This particular pocket poet's edition, published by Lawrence Ferlinghetti's City Lights, certainly abetted the chapbook and alternative poetics revolution. How? How? Original blockbuster poster child of chapbook, recently made into a movie starring James Franco. So a chapbook, how, became a culture. How became a cultural intervention. How sparked a literary and socially and culturally activist generation, as well as a historical trial. How had extraordinary worldwide influence, published in hundreds of other languages, helped fuel a school, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics on the continental divide of the U.S. of A. How many beat conferences, how many countless dissertations, how many copies sold, how many copies sold to support a whole press which published hundreds of other authors? A chapbook became an industry. How, how, how we honor you, the poster child of chapbooks. We can do it ourselves, the ethos within our own communities. We do not have to wait for them to discover us. We are at the controls. And this is a quote from a talk that Baraka gave in the late 90s at the Kerouac School called Cultural Revolution and the Canon. Very empathetic 
about this do-it-yourself ethos. I wish I could imitate Baraka, but I can't. But it's up to us as poets of truth if that's what we want to be. And obviously, that's why we have to have class struggle, because some of us are willing to struggle. I've never been afraid to struggle. But some people say, well, you struggle too hard. I think as long as you're principled, as long as you're not trying to wipe anybody out, kill anybody, I'm talking about the world of literature and art, that you have to struggle above board and forthrightly to try to get a higher level of unity. That's what I've always wanted. And I think if we can't pass out of this world without leaving something of value, some kind of institution, like a political party, because when I say political party, all people think you mean is voting political party. It has to do with anything. It has to do, you know, with leading demonstrations, opening museums, fighting economically. Where are our revolutionary filmmakers? Where are our revolutionary filmmakers? We've already seen the camcorder as a revolutionary object. Where are our camcorder films? We can't make $80 million films about Batman, nor do we want to. But where are the $200 films? Where are the $1,000 films that we circulate ourselves? You know what I'm saying? Where are the little art galleries that only fit 10 people at a time, where they sell the painting for a dollar and a half or $10? Where's that little mimeograph stuff that we sell for $2? We're not fighting against these people. All we're trying to do is get in. You have to fight these people. You have to fight them even when you're locked up, you know. You've got to fight, you know. But do something. Don't just stand around lamenting. You know what I'm saying? I get so tired of lamenting. Just fight. I believe there's enough resources right here in this Naropa tent to set up at least one theater somewhere, one film studio somewhere, a network of nightclubs, a network of poetry rings, a network of presses. I mean, do something. Don't just wait to be accepted by the NEA. I mean, don't just wait for them. That's what I'm saying. Are there any questions? So, Baraka encapsulates this spirit, and this is in a book published by Coffeehouse Press, this text I was reading from. Baraka encapsulates the spirit of this ge his generation and the spirit of struggles so endemic to his life, but also a sense of a grassroots praxis I've inherited and have lived by. While it touches on the larger implications of art and movie making, it includes the vision so entwined with the practices of the new American poetry communities, the Umbra community, later the language community, and so on. The poetics demon activity chapbook mast is vast and entwined, and the edges blur. It's a fascinating, vast study, and the tradition continues. And here are a few words from Jerry Rothenberg's preface to A Secret Location on the Lower East Side, which covers a lot of this early history. Everyone loves a paradox. Let me start off with this now familiar one. The mainstream of American poetry, the part by which it has been and will be known, has been long in the margins, nurtured in the margins, carried forward vibrant in the margins. As mainstream and margin both, it represents our underground economy as poets, the gray market for our spiritual, corporeal, spiritual, corporeal exchanges. It is the creation as such of these poets who have seized or have often invented their own means of production. One saw the whole modernist scene born out of the self-published small press, 
which included Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, Emily Dickinson's Intimate Fascicles. We moved to the vortex of Ezra Pound's activity on behalf of his own writing and so many others, Little Review, Transition, and so on. Our spiritual, corporeal exchanges. And one felt this efficacious power, a seal of one's dedication, joining the small press revolution in the 60s. Many of the early small press ventures were coming from individuals connected with bookstores, coming from particular sites, activity zones. Robin Blazer's The Moth Poem, Open Space, 1965, I first encountered in Berkeley during the Berkeley Conference, a conference which sweetened the path. So one found one's people, one found one's tribe, as it were, from these additions, extraordinary additions that spurred me to Berkeley, to the Poetry Project, to Boulder and the founding of Naropa Institute. At Berkeley, at the age of 20, I met poet Louis Warsh, who became a partner and co-editor of the Angel Hair Projects, the magazine itself, and 60 small press editions. At a Robert Duncan reading, we founded this magazine and entitled it Angel Hair. And this angel hair was not only the very thin pasta, but also came from a poem by a high school buddy, Jonathan Cott. Angel hair sleeps with a boy in my head. She says, school is a drawing of your body. And she paints lectures on paradox when she screws. The boy has blue eyes, but looks like me. He says my beauty comes from lectures, especially when they are boring. In fact, their love is boring, and sometimes I cover them with mist to feel this true, fair world of things, a sea reflecting love. And when I read books, they take part in all of it. And when I want to be alone, they go out for a walk. They can never leave me, and I hope I will never go away. And this is one of the first works I heard Robert Duncan read in Berkeley that same summer of 1965, where we founded Angel Hair, and which we later published in Angel Hair Number 3. He was reading from a text called Sonnets after Ted Berrigan. So this is Robert Duncan. Beginning with Sonnets for Ted Berrigan, turning on poetry and I'm off Along lines, Ginsburg is reading to places. It takes a line in here I have not heard. Beautiful yellow cheeks and jowls. Marking an uneven stanza off with jewels. Little girls reading all the way through 88 Highway into some part of Oregon. Goddess of music and poetry bypass. Where Allen Ginsberg says this a line for you in your own collection. It is 8.45 and two more. For closing, we need something lovely that will lead on to closing doors we see. And a line from John Ashbery, the Academy of the Future 
is opening its doors to us. And this from Joe Brainerd from a memoir section at the end of the Steve Clay Granary Press book and the Steve Clay Angel Hair Anthology. Joe Brainerd, wonderful artist, writer, poet, so key to these early years and also had his own small press called Boke, B-O-K-E. Dear Anne, you know, I write for people. I really do. When I write, I feel like I'm talking to people and telling them, you, the things that I want to tell them. If there were no magazines and no readings, I wouldn't write. Having written, I remember. And now not having read it or heard it, it really drives me up the wall. Because soon it won't, for me, be personal anymore. What I'd really like is for you to print it or for you to let me read it as a reading at St. Mark's Church. Nineteen sixty-six, the Poetry Project, founded on a grant from the Office of Economic Opportunity under Lyndon Johnson. I was hired as an assistant to Joel Oppenheimer, and it was a grant to work with alienated, alienated youth on the Lower East Side. At the same time, I was getting to know Joel. I met his wife, who was a Helen Oppenheimer, who was a palm reader. And she read my palm, and she said, you will always stay loyal to the small press. She actually said that. It was sort of my you always. She saw these lines in my hand. So out of that somewhat collective operation, of course, the grant ended after a couple of years, and we had to seek other funding. Uh, I remember once we got uh, money from the foundation whose money came from Lifesavers. That was appropriate. Uh, we continue, That still goes on, as I'm sure many of you know, the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, and also as a site for a lot of small press activity and this sense of projecting into public space and performance and kind of activism. So I worked there a decade. Uh, many, many anthologies came out of that project. Many other people used the magazine facilities, the Mimeo magazine. It was wired for robberies and uh, something called the Pinkerton Agency. And so if you didn't trip, if you didn't set the wire properly and get the numbers right, these uh, agents would show up with drawn guns. I remember several nights, late at night, sweating over the Mimeo machine and not getting the wire right. You literally had to you know, stretch this thing across the room and not either gesture over it. It was a hot wire triggering this alarms and then these people would show up with guns at your head. So, you know, we were, that was the struggle. Um, and then the founding of the Kerouac School in 1974, 
and we built small press publishing into the curriculum from whence so many things have uh, continued to emerge. And we have something there called the Harry Smith Print Shop, honoring Harry Smith, who, who is primarily known for his um, anthology of folk music that he put together in the 50s. We called him a cosmologist, who's also a filmmaker, and he, uh, we had him in residence at Naropa for several years. Allen Ginsberg had rescued him from a flea bag hotel on the Lower East Side. So we're, we were in this Harry Smith print shop, and our print shop features a Chandler and Price Platinum Press, a Vander Cook SP 15 proof press. Courses are offered for students who wish to learn printing techniques using distributable type on both platinum and proof presses. The print shop adds a fine crafts dimension to the writing and poetics course offerings. Periodic classes in book binding and paper making are also offered. The core press and much of the older Perpetua type were originally owned by poet Lynn Haginian's Toowoomba Press. And just to stress this sense of lineage where we're working and students are working into the future because Naropa is a hundred year project at least. That's how we founded it. Something that in, in terms of floating world, there's an interesting contradiction here. Uh, but what is a century but a blink of an eye? Any case, we inherited this press uh, which had published people like Fanny Howe, Michael Palmer, Charles Bernstein, Alice Notley. She had passed this press on to David Scheidlauer, and David had used his imprint, Coincidence Press, to publish books by Larry Eigner, Andrew Schelling, Robert Kelly, Rachel Duplessis. And then when he decided to stop printing, he offered his print shop, including the historic Chandler and Price Platten Press to Naropa. And then later, equipment arrived from the Rydall Press, which was founded by friends of D.H. Lawrence and from Ken Michalowski's Alternative Press. And a large platinum press was received from Salt Works Press and dates back to 1915. Type and more equipment have been added. And we call it the Kavayantra Press, Sanskrit word for poetry machine. And this is the imprint for our chapbooks and broadsides. So just to close with this part, I just wanted to conjure an image of a kind of activity, activity that used to go on in my apartment on St. Mark's Place, 33 St. Mark's Place, now a um, tattoo parlor and piercing salon. I still go back in there occasionally and try to visualize the old days when we were up all night working on these kinds of projects. But one image I wanted to leave you with, because a lot of us were involved with these individual, just one-of-a-kind items, these little uh, handmade books. And my collection in Ann Arbor has a great number of these one-of-a-kind editions, and including one by Robert Duncan. I can still visualize Robert Duncan sitting on the floor, pen in hand, 1967 making some delicate little fascicles.
And now we're going to have just a little flash through some of these uh, names of magazines and sites. Let's try to sing a little tribute. Seminar, the floating bear. Mail list, mail art, mail list, mail art. William Everson in 1943 in the conscientious objectors camp at Waldport, Oregon, publishing poems in an unofficial newsletter, The Untied, and used a mimeo machine to produce his own ex-war elegies. An astonished eye looks out of the air. Kenneth Patchen, 1945. The Ark, Rexroth, Eberhardt, Paul Goodman. The Homosexual in Society, published in Dwight McDonald's Politics, Robert Duncan. The Experimental Review, the Berkeley Miscellany, G, J, and Open Space, 1964, Poetry as Magic, Workshop, Jack Spicer, John Wiener's Measure, City Lights Opening in 1953, Beatitude, Six Gallery Reading, 1955. All writers except Rex Roth in their 20s. What started in San Francisco and spread from there across the world was public poetry, the return of a tribal, pre-literate relationship between poet and audience. You can Table from Kerouac's cable. Call it big table. Call it big table. Call it big table. Impounded by post office. Challenged by ACLU judge Julius Hoffman. I later saw at the Chicago trial. Deep image. Ethno poetics. Alcharinga. Ethno poetics. 1962, Fuck You, a Magazine of the Arts, is edited, published, zapped, designed, freaked, groped, stomped, and ejaculated by Ed Sanders at a secret location on the Lower East Side, New York City, U.S. of A. Nineteen forty, John Ashbury, as editor of the Harvard Advocate, publishes stories and poems by Frank O'Hara. Fifty-three, Folder, edited by Daisy Alden. Fifty-three, John Bernard Myers of Tibor Denage Gallery, publishes Frank O'Hara's Oranges. Nineteen fifty-three, Meditations in an Emergency. Nineteen fifty-seven. 58, Schuyler's Alfred and Guinevere. 59, Kenneth Coates Co. 60, Barbara Guest, The Location of Things. Frank O'Hara dies, 1966.
However, however, Kathleen Fraser, however, however, however. And Kenward Elmsley's Z. Thank you so much for being here. Thank all of you for being here. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune in to our website at www.awpwriter.org.